Uh, I'm going to grab my Bible as I do. Open your Bibles or your phones to 1 Kings chapter 18. And we're going to have a, a good old-fashioned Bible teaching today. Is that okay with everybody? Okay. Um, we've been talking about culture and particularly the last couple weeks on the concept of of solitude. And what I'd like to do today is continue on the, the realm of solitude, but align it in the concept of silence in a fresh way. Um, first, I want to say this. Uh, I was reminded um, late last night of uh, an experience I had when I was in uh, high school. My mom and dad are here. When did we go to New York City um, with my cousin Mari? How old was I? What year was it? Any idea? Somewhere in the 90s, late 90s, mid 90s, somewhere like that. Well, I, I'm, I, I share this because um, it was one of those family trips. You go see New York City, you're kind of wandering around Times Square, and you're hot and sticky, and you know, mom has this idea like, we're going to go to Times Square Church. Because, because we read Cross and the Switchblade. If you haven't read it, great book. And we're now going to go to church, and it's Wednesday night. I don't care how bad we all smell and how hungry we are and whatever else. We're going to church, New York City. And we had with us my, my cousin, Mari, who's about my age. She's a year younger, I think. And uh, she's always a good sport coming to church things. But she was, you know, anytime she steps in a church, she's, you know, out of her element. So there's that kind of like, you know, awareness that you're going in with, with a family member that's got no idea what's going on. You have no idea what's going on. And I remember it was one of the first times, a defining moment in my life, where the Spirit of God was so evident. The presence of God in the room was so evident that, that uh, I just had to take it all in. Before church even started, there were, uh, I don't know how many people. Um, it wasn't necessarily like a packed house. They were in a, some kind of a theater, that, what I recall. But people would, were coming to the front. I don't know if a worship team was playing or not, but it was almost like this buzz effect where there wasn't just socialization. There were people coming with real needs, and they'd come right to the front, and there was a stage, so the people would come to the front, and it was like there was an altar call. There's, there's just like a line of people just coming as they come in, just some were weeping, some were, some were praising God, some were laughing, some were just doing whatever they needed to do. And what was so profound to me was in the midst of all the noise, distraction, and chaos of Times Square, there was still noise and a, and a reverberation and a sound in that room. But it was kind of like if you have the new Apple noise-canceling headphones, there's something that happens when you, turn the, when you put them in your ear. It's like this suction sound. Where it goes, and and you, it's like you're in another aura. It was kind of like that. You open the doors from Times Square, and it's like a completely chaotic place outside. And then it was like... And you're entered into the presence of God. And there were people there with real needs. It wasn't because it was Sunday. It was because it was Wednesday. And how do you get through the distraction of a city like New York without coming to the altar? 
that was the sense I got from the people in whatever age I was. And I remember just, um, I have no idea. I guess there was a message. I guess there was songs. I don't remember anything else except that uh, I do this continually even today. Like, I don't have to be emotional. I, when I feel like an extra measure of God's presence around, I, I, I just, my eyes become faucets. And, and I just, you know, I make, I make tears from my eyeballs. And so, so that was happening, and it was, it was awkward because there was no message attached to it. My cousin's sitting there just trying to figure things out, and I'm like, I don't know why I'm wiping my face. What's happening in here? And I didn't feel awkward. I just didn't know what was happening. I just felt like, okay, there's a, there's a realm of God here that I haven't experienced in the other places I've been when I've been around God. And it was profound, and it was a defining moment in my life. Uh, so with that, I, I, just, I want that to just stir something up. Maybe think of some of these defining moments when you've been aware of the presence of God. Or maybe you've never been aware of the presence of God and you've heard stories of other people and you think they're insane. That's totally fine too. I think it's okay to be a little insane. Most of the prophets were borderline insane. If you read an Old Testament prophetic book, I encourage you to all do that. We're going to do a little bit of that now. These guys were, were not normal they were, they were super annoying. They had all kinds of character flaws. Um, I'm not even sure God always liked them. And they didn't really like anybody else for the most part. <clears throat> and somehow when you get somebody that's not worried about what other people think, you can, you can use them <laughs> in the, all the right ways. So I say that um, just to kind of prep our hearts and our spirits. Is that all right? And, and we're going to talk about the realm of, of, uh, of silence, though, because there's, there's a need in, the, in a culture of chaos and noise to, to, to what we've been saying. We have to be people committed to the practice of solitude, and you cannot be committed to the practice of solitude without getting comfortable in silence. And when we talk about revival... I like to, I've been, I've been liking the term renewal. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And, and how renewal is maybe the church's activity in the culture and revival with purpose. Moving from a move in the church to a move around the world. Revival is kind of awakening something inside God's people so it affects those outside the walls of church. That's maybe what renewal is. Revival with purpose. And I love how Mark Sayers says that we need to move from a mode in, in our Christian culture from the, that has just been kind of normal, regular, into a mode of renewal. And what does that look like? It first starts with we have to start to recognize that we are in a mode. You are in some kind of normalcy of mode. And you have habits. I have habits. And when we realize God wants to do something new, that he wants to interrupt us in a way that our patterns have to change. And so when patterns aren't bringing renewal, they're not. Check. When patterns, your patterns, your modes, your norms, they're not bringing renewal, they're not going to, probably. And so we have to ask ourselves, are, do we need to continue? Are we doing something in our norms that it's just a matter of kind of obedience and following God? Or maybe to look at, to really align into God's heart to renew all things and to bring a revival. 
even into just our own life, revival in my own life. I believe that if we all just steward revival in our personal lives and in this community, we are doing our part to bring revival into the city and nations. We have to get down to what this looks like day to day because just watching a stadium filled isn't going to cut it. I, I was amazed at what's happening down in Brazil this week. Maybe some of you are. I've heard reports that the president of Brazil was on stage at the, at the Send gathering declaring his love for Jesus, and it just stirred me up in all the right ways. A president declaring his love for Jesus. Uh, not like Trump does. I'm, a, I'm, like, I'm actually fine with the way Trump does because I, you know, I was kind of skeptical and still am on his faith in many ways. So I, I don't mind when he does. But when a, a president, you can see the love of Jesus come out of him, what's happening in Brazil. Whew, and the stadium's filled, packed out with people worshiping the king. It's just unbelievable. But you know what? Those of us that are here, I, I think it's a, it's a grave failure for us to think that we have to be there to be a part of stewarding and promoting a culture of renewal. It has to start in our homes. It has to start in our lives. And so with that, it requires some kind of an honest assessment. It has to ask, we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing now? What do we need to start doing? And what do we need to stop doing? We have to realize that there's a mode that we're in, and a renewal mode means that we have to change some things and we have to grow. I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about us. I've got to change some things, and I need to grow. I believe when we change some things and we grow as people, all the right places of growth everywhere else that we all worry about, as far as the church or our businesses or whatever else, those things will grow the right way. So we have to change and we have to grow. That change is inevitably about us changing. And it's personal renewal that leads to corporate change. This woman, uh, Carol Dweck, she wrote in a book called Mindsets that there's, there's two mindsets that people get stuck in. A fixed mindset and then the, the goal is actually a growth mindset. A fixed mindset would be this cultural emphasis of achievement where our identity is linked to what we accomplish and what we achieve. That's a fixed mindset. And I find that an amazing perspective because we all go, okay, yeah, I need to resist this, this, this pull to achieve something. And the reality is, is when you are, enter into an achievement mindset, this isn't even a Christian author. She's saying you're actually fixed. You miss out on all the creativity and all the growth and all the purposes that your life, your business, your family, your relationships are meant to have because you're stuck in a mindset that's fixed. When you enter into a growth mindset, what happens is <clears throat> you start to realize that God is always growing us, making us more like him. Our identity is in a process. And when we embrace that process of growth, we allow him in surrender to shake our foundations. So we need to understand this. One, that growth is going to happen. Change is good. And three... It's something we need to step into. Can we say amen to that? Amen. So what are the patterns we need to change? Um, Stephen Covey, everyone's read him, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He would ask this concept of what do you need to do if you want to massively move things forward in your life? And, and maybe we could reframe the, the question to something like, what do I need to do that would massively move things forward towards renewal? What do I actually need to do? 
I, I embrace my mindset from fixed to growth, but what is it do I really need to do? I think there's two core things, and maybe flesh that out in the words this morning. The first is prayer. I know that's it's a given. But what we've been exploring is that many of us don't actually pray in solitude, and we certainly don't pray in silence as a way of life. Maybe that's a place to start. Prayer precedes every renewal. And God brings conviction and people pray in a contending sense when you see renewal happen. But we need to pursue a culture of prayer that's okay to enter into the presence of God, into the solitude and into the silence. We need to have this mindset of maybe swapping modes, out with the old way of doing things and in with the new. And I think Christians that are doing a lot of good things, like us in the room, you guys have amazing lives. But there are always shifts and modes that need to be swapped out to upgrade to a fresh new way of doing life. Out with the old and into the new. Out with the old, into with the new. And much of the heart of the gospel is about this exchange, this rebirth, this old and new coming together. And so a commitment of a culture of prayer is critical, but in the praying is the mindset that when I enter to commune with God in prayer, I am committing to surrender and I am committing to an old and new exchange. So as you start to pray afresh, covenant with me. I'm praying with a purpose. I'm praying for an exchange. I'm praying for an upgrade. And the second piece with the prayer is time. It's a commodity that's never been more valuable. And it doesn't matter if you've got four kids, eight kids, no kids. You live in Los Angeles. And you have something that is vying for your time. Uh, I, was, I was told that Netflix is even doing studies on how they can take more of your sleep because it's a commodity. If they can keep you awake, keep you watching longer, their business prospers. Everything is out for your time. So perhaps the core question for us how do we recapture time and divert it into God's purposes? How do we allow time to be made holy again so that our time is an act of worship? When we pause in silence for two minutes, you are declaring to the world around you of an authority that you live by, a rhythm that you set that they didn't set, that you have power to put the pad, to put the phone, to put the computer, to put the noise down and worship. It's a heavenly prioritizing. It's not an invitation of one, two, three, four, five. It's a prioritization of heaven's realities leading us and guiding us. So I'd like to suggest, what are we doing now that would move things forward for renewal if we would stop, change, exchange, grow? I'd like to suggest we start with this assessment of prayer and time and have a fresh look at solitude and silence. If you're not already at 1 Kings 18, jump in there right now. Thank you. And I'm going to flip it open. Okay. So, Elijah, prophet. He, hold on, let me adjust. So, Elijah. In uh, 1 Kings, I think I said 18. Flip to 19. We're going faster. Elijah 
is, uh, he, he's, he's been called of God. We don't learn a ton about him. He's an Old Testament prophet. The prophets are God's mouthpiece to speak truth to the nation of Israel. They, they are in a time period right now in, in 1 Kings 19 where they have an evil king, one of the most evil kings in their history, Ahab. And so there's been this drought that's supposed to be pulling them back to the heart of God and to stop worshiping other gods. Baal is the, the name of the God that you all probably heard. It's some Sunday school lesson about how Elijah goes to the mountain and he has this standoff with the prophets of Baal. One prophet of God, like 400 and some prophets of Baal. And, and Elijah comes back with the word of God that the drought is over. And what I love about this story is, is that God didn't tell Elijah to go up on the mountain and do this whole thing. If you're not familiar with the story, basically Elijah does this. He, he, he tells all the prophets to come. He starts making fun of them. He gives them whatever they want to make an altar with all these things. And then they're supposed to call down fire. And whoever's God burns up the sacrifice, that's the one true God, and we all have to follow him. I know it's weird. And so what happens is, is that the prophets of Baal are doing all these things. They're cutting themselves. It's really gory and disgusting. And Elijah's making fun of them the whole day. God did not tell Elijah to do this whole thing. This is the kind of thing that sick, weirdo prophets do. God says, go tell the king that it's going to rain. And so Elijah goes, cool. That means I get to do something weird. And so Elijah decides he's going to go up on Mount Carmel, which is this epic place. Tracy will be there in a little bit. And, and, and they have this standoff for everybody to see. And so after the whole prophets of Baal fail, then Elijah has them do all this water, tons and tons of water on top of his sacrifice. They rebuild the altar, and he calls to the Lord, show them you're the one true God. <laughs> Fire falls from heaven, consumes the entire thing. And so Ahab is taken aback. Wow. Okay. Maybe I'm evil. Maybe I need to change my ways. And so he goes back to his lovely wife. Her name happened to be Jezebel. That was a real biblical person. She's so evil that we use the term as a derogatory phrase now, Jezebel. Except when you have a coworker named Jezebel like I did in Chicago. <laughs> I could never get over it. At a Bible institute, her name was Jezebel, people. Just as just an aside, I just have to vent a little bit. Someone's mother said, this is my daughter whom I love. I'm going to name her Jezebel. Okay, that happens. So all that to say, we need good biblical interpretation. Jezebel is an interesting name. I like, maybe this was just like a revivalist. It's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that name and I'm going to refine it in fire. Uh, hopefully that was her perspective. So anyway, Jezebel, though, in the character of the Old Testament, is a super evil woman, and, and she hears of what God did, and she's not intimidated at all. She tells her uh, hubs, Ahab, you go tell Elijah that I'm going to kill him. And you know what Elijah does? Obviously, he makes fun of her, and he plans his next little thing. No. What Elijah does is he cowers, and he runs for six days. Because Elijah is convinced that the God of Israel is all-powerful to proclaim signs and wonders, but he isn't trusting God's protection over his life. Why? Because she'd killed a whole lot of prophets. He had faith for one thing and not for another. His entire career as a prophet had been one where he only moved 
when the Lord spoke and moved him from one place to another. He came back to tell him about the rain, and then all this rain stuff happened. That's another part of the story. I'm not even telling you the fact that he also proclaimed there was the drought over, and then it all rained, and everybody's experiencing the rain, Jezebel included. And then she says, one word, going to kill you still. I don't care. And he runs for six days. That's amazing. And he runs into the wilderness, and he has this exchange with the Lord. And he goes, Verse, verse 4 of uh, chapter 19, 1 Kings. He, sat, he sits down under this tree, and he asks that he might die. He's into the wilderness, so he's in this place of solitude. There's this place and this theme throughout Scripture. Moses goes into the solitude. Here we are, Elijah's in the solitude in the wilderness, in the Aramos in the Greek. And Jesus goes into the wilderness. The prophet of God often is into the wilderness, and this is where you, dis, you, you realize what is leading them. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Elijah runs in fear into the wilderness. And when he does that, he asks that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Which is interesting because he's afraid for his life, and now he's asking the Lord to take his life. So he's a hypocrite. I, I recently, I've heard many things on Elijah and, and people using this passage to like really like paint him and say, well, you need to be like Elijah. Go and meet with God like this and that and the other. I'm like, Elijah was completely lame. If you, if, you, if you learn anything about Elijah, learn that you can have a terrible attitude, miss all of the wisdom of God's voice, and still be used of God. He missed so much because he was a stubborn, stubborn prophet. <laughs> and then he lived in fear because of a woman that he trusted more than God's voice. But what happens in the wilderness, he wants to die. And he lay down and sleep under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, and there was a cake. And a second time touched him and said, arise and eat. The journey's too great for you. And essentially, he's told by the angel of God, keep going on this journey. I know you started by running from me. I want you to keep going. Where does he tell him to go? He says, go to Mount Horeb, which is where? It's another name for Mount Sinai, the place where his original prophet Moses encountered the presence of God. What is he telling him? Elijah, I want you to remember. Remember the story of God. Remember my presence. So he goes. He went in strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God, which is meant to be this 40 days, 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus fasts 40 days. There's always a theme that's telling us something about what this Father of God is like. And he came there to a cave. He lodged in it, and the word of the Lord came to him and said, finally, God's voice again. So we have no voice of God. He sends an angel instead. We have no voice of God in the first eight verses. Now, all of a sudden, God's voice enters, and he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord and the God, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Yes, so an angel came, gave him food supernaturally, strengthened him, gave him a word from the Lord to go to Horeb. And he's still complaining. He's full of fear. He's full of depression. And he's full of self-pity. Despite the fact that he knows he's on a mission and he's hearing the voice of God. It's still possible for ourselves to get in the way. 
And so the father that we need to realize is making himself available to be known here. Responds by saying this. He said, Elijah, go out, stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great strong wind tore the mountain and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not. Was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And here's the thing. The Lord had been in the earthquake. He'd been in the fire. And he'd been in the wind. In multiple other remembrances of the Lord and his acts. But you're not meant to know the Lord by his acts. You're meant to know him by his presence. And Elijah was being ushered into a revelation, understanding, and a relationship with God that wasn't based on just the external happenings and the noise. If our relationship with God is only defined by how we discern the noise, we're screwed. We have to be able to discern the presence in the midst of the noise. And we discover that in defining moments in silence and solitude. And this happens for Elijah, an opportunity at least, right here when the Lord does this. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. That's a bad translation. Well, it's not a bad translation. I'll just tell you about the translation in a second. But the sound of a low whisper. Or you might know it as a gentle voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. He went out, stood at the entrance of the cave, and behold, there was a voice to him. And it said, again, what are you doing here, Elijah? In other words, there's a second chance. The Lord's asking him the same question. When the Lord asks you the question the second time, it means something. It means your first answer was not the right answer. Elijah did not learn that lesson. If you hear the Lord ask you more than one time, you need to reevaluate. Why, pray tell, Father, have you asked me this question again? Elijah did not do that. He gives him the same lame response. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, meaning I've done all these things for you. I've been jealous for you. I've been, what that just means is I've been loyal to you when everybody else has screwed you over, worshipped other gods, thrown down altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, am left. How arrogant. And this is the epically sad defining response of the Lord in this moment to Elijah's failure of having wisdom to respond in the moment. The Lord said, Verse 15, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Heziel to be the king over Syria, Jehu, the son of Nifshi, to be, to be anointed the king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of a really long name. And you shall anoint him to be the prophet in your place. Out with the old, in with the new. I'm not sure that would have happened if Elijah would have had wisdom to respond to a defining moment in his life. And what's interesting in his story is that he doesn't really fully do any of these things. At least we don't have a record of him anointing any of these people. He does go and find Elisha. He does allow Elisha to follow him. He never anoints him. And what we see is a prophet that hungers for the Lord to walk with him 
versus a prophet that has always resisted his calling and his purpose with bitterness. And the Lord finally says at the end, verse 18, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, Elijah, you're not the only one. Get off your pity horse. Okay. So, what do we do with that? Well, there's a number of things. Number one, what I want us to learn is the voice was supposed to be leading Elijah. This is just like us. Oftentimes, we live with his presence. We're sure of what he's doing. And then we run off, and we're not really. That was out of fear. And that might be, you might be in a place where, you, where you're living as you ran here out of fear, or you're not running where you're supposed to be out of fear, or something of, of careers or relational things or whatever it is. We can find ourselves in a place where we might actually even feel guilty. I know I'm not supposed to be here. The Lord didn't condemn him. He just kept asking him, why is he here? Giving him the opportunity, since you're here, let me give you the opportunity for a moment. You still have that opportunity. But allow him to meet you in the silence and solitude that allows the distraction to speak the truth of what he wants to do with you here. Elijah was supposed to be led by the voice. Number, number two, he runs out of fear, and this is also us. It's the most natural thing in the world when we get news that contradicts our experience and that is maybe a stretch of our faith in some way, shape, or form, we often run. Some of us have businesses that we're doing really well, and then it's like we get stretched, and it's like I actually don't have faith to take this leap, so I run away from that out of fear. Or, or I have a really good dating relationship going on. Things are going great, and now I'm scared, so I run and screw it up. Fear is a natural response to being stretched beyond your capacity of control. The life of the believer is meant to be in surrender so he can take you past what you can do in your own strength. He runs out of fear. This is us too. And here's what fear does. Fear breeds depression always. Fear breeds shame always. And fear breeds self-pity always. Elijah knew that he was doing things wrong. He actually felt shame for what he was doing. Kill me now. I've screwed up, sort of. But I'm still going to, with my last breath, defend what I've done and hang on to some shred of dignity by denying that God Almighty is speaking to me out here and I'm going to declare why you shouldn't punish me or something. He's really just declaring why he doesn't want to approach God in his weakness and allow God to heal his woundedness and his fear. He won't do it because self-pity masks it, depression masks it, and shame masks our fear so that the Lord that wants to cover our fears to be our safe harbor cannot get through when we put up the barriers. And Elijah, in the midst of of the almighty God coming to him in that kind of power and intimacy and presence can still have a choice before him. How will he respond to this defining moment? So, 
God's not afraid of your attitude. We all need to hear that. He's not afraid of a runner, and he's not afraid of your attitude. I don't know what order I had that in. (laughs) It's amazing how he completely runs out of fear for six days into the wilderness, and God meets him there. And his message to him is, remember who you are by remembering what I've done. Go to Sinai. And if you're feeling defeated because you've run, all you need to do is stop and remember. And then God's not afraid of your attitude. He wasn't afraid of Moses's, and he's the God of second chances. Let him give you the second chance, and don't ruin the question coming again. It's an invitation for you to change your poor response and to enter in to the God of second chances, opportunity to take this moment and redefine you. Out with the old, in with the new. It's either going to be get rid of the promises on your life because you won't let him use them, or out with the old, in with the new, is meant to be our defining reality of sons and daughters, that we live with the gospel, that I have an old self and a new self, and I've let God kill that old self, resurrect the new me, and live from that place. And every time that old voice starts creeping into my ear, I come back into the silence where the Lord meets with me, helps me remember who I am, whose I am, and drowns out. The voice of shame, of fear, of lies. That's what the invitation is. So don't miss the presence in the silence. Don't miss the presence in the silence. My beautiful wife gave me this, uh, gave me this article by a, by a Catholic theologian. I'm really loving the Catholics they like to talk about solitude. And uh, this guy, Stephen Beale, says, says this about this encounter of Elijah. He goes, here it is, the God of silence that is encountered. As other translations bear out, the, the light, silent sound, referring to that still small voice. Some translations might say the light, silent sound or a whistling of gentle air. And he says this, there's a certain kind of intimacy that is only possible in silence. What is incredible then is not the natural phenomena that rock the mountain, but the creator of those phenomena. No more than this, the creator of that very mountain, in its foundations, the atoms and forces that bound them together into a monster of a rock, the earth that was its foundation, and the sky that stretched beyond, would step out beyond the curtain of nature to be present with Elijah in the intimacy of great silence. Here's the thing, Elijah heard something, but it's not quite silence. The Hebrew phrase is actually something to the effect of dakdem awamakol, which essentially means small, still, and voice. However, that's what those words individually mean by themselves. But that latter word, kol, being the standard Hebrew word for voice, ends up really having more of a sense of a calm silence. And so we have more of a paradox that we have to step into here. What if he he saw and heard and felt the quake, the fire, and the wind? And he didn't hear a still small voice. He encountered 
a calm silence. His voice was in the silence. His presence was the silence. Perhaps the Lord that you're asking to speak is asking you to meet him in the silence so that he can show you his presence that can be discerned from the noise. And to, to, quote, to quote this beautiful Catholic priest, Beale, he's actually not a priest, he's a theologian. He says, as readers, what we need to do is rather than try to solve this paradox of the calm silence, it's better to simply embrace it. Embrace it and then we're, we're confronted once again with something new. That Elijah, what he heard was God's silent speech. Or put another way, from out of that silence, God spoke to Elijah. And more to the point, the silence was God speaking to Elijah. Max Picard says this, when two people are conversing with one another, a third is always present because silence is listening. That is what gives breath to a conversation. When the words are not moving merely within the narrow space occupied by the two speakers, but when they come from afar, from the place where silence is listening. So the place for us then seems to begin with prayer, but a different kind of prayer than what we've been praying, in a different way than the way we've been praying. And in the most obvious sense, it seems to come with this fertile soil of silent prayer. Silence not only teaches us to be better listeners, it makes us better speakers. And as Picard notes, words that are spoken out of silence of the heart are more meaningful rather than words that come from the noise of other words. Cultivating an interior silence seems to be an essential preparation for prayer. So, I want to kind of wrap this up by reading a story that, that I was messed up by this week. If you were at the Men's Time Primal Path on the morning, Thursday morning, I've uh, been reading this book called The Power of Moments. And I read it, or I didn't read, I, I, I told another story that was really good out of that one. Um, so you will not have heard this unless you read this book. The Power of Moments. And in this, in this uh, uh, particular chapter, it's, it's uh, again, not a Christian book, but it's talking about something of the heart of not letting a defining moment slip by. And what we have the opportunity to do when we step into things in choice. Because here's the thing, the Lord will give us oftentimes an opportunity to respond. But we have to be people that realize that we can bring transi transitions from the old to the new because that's our identity and we can do it whenever we want. And when we're stuck in a transition, perhaps the Lord is inviting you to define your own moment. And that's what happens here. So there's this uh, counselor named Kenneth Doka and he, he shares of this woman whose husband had, had died of ALS. And uh, they were a Catholic uh, family, ironically, no relation to the Catholic friend over there. And she claims that they'd had a happy marriage. But ALS is a super ugly disease. 
And in the, the final years of that disease, it had been really, really hard on the couple. And so they talked about how, how their marriage wasn't strong at the end. It was super ugly, and it was really hard, and they fought more than they ever had before in their life. But here's what they did. Every night after a tough day, they put their hands together in bed, let their rings touch as they held hands, and they'd recite their wedding vows. And so this time has come six years later where this, where this widow realizes it's time to move on. Her husband's passed, and she's, she's realizing it's time to start dating again. And she tells him, I can't take my wedding ring off. I can't date with my wedding ring, and I can't take it off. She believed that marriages were for life, but she also knew that she had, she had honored her commitment. She was confused, and she was stuck. And so Docker suggested that she, she have some kind of transitional ritual to help her stuckness, to take off the ring. And she said, okay. And so with her permission, she got together with her priest, and they had a ceremony. And so one Sunday afternoon after Mass, her closest friends along with her priest got together. She called him to the altar, and he began to ask her some questions. He goes, were you faithful to your husband in good times and in bad? Yes. In sickness and in health? Yes. And the priest led her through her wedding vows, but in the past tense. She affirmed them in the presence of the witnesses that she had been faithful and she had loved and honored her husband. And then the priest said, may I have the ring, please? She takes it off and hands it to him in a moment where there's not a dry eye. She later tells the story and says, it was like the ring came off as magic. And so as the priest accepts the ring, they arranged for the ring to be interlocked with her husband's ring and then affixed to the front of their wedding photo. And so the ceremony allows her to attest to the people she most loves that she had fulfilled her wedding vows. It signaled to everyone present that her identity was about to change. It was a moment that allowed her a fresh start. At the heart of the reverse wedding story is a powerful insight. At the point the widow sent, was sent to see this therapist, she was already willing and ready to begin dating. But, and it's clear that even if she hadn't met this therapist, she probably would have started dating eventually. It might have taken a month, a year, maybe five years. But throughout this uncertain time, this transition time, she would have felt anxious. Like, am I ready? Is it okay? Is it okay for me to be ready? And all those questions that come up when you go through a traumatic life encounter in a transition like this. And we have this natural hunger as human beings. Every year we just started another new year and new year's resolutions and new starts. We have this innate desire for a fresh start. They call this the fresh start effect. And they even say that, that this natural fresh start effect is essentially us all saying as humanity, that's not me, this old me. This is a fresh start for the new me. And the new me isn't going to make the same old mistakes. In other words, New Year's resolutions aren't really about resolutions, are they? They're about old past failures that are left on the ledger of the old me, and the new me starts today. And here's the beauty of what 
scientists are telling us is that can start any moment that you choose to step into. It doesn't just happen at New Year's. In fact, on college campuses, they, they say that you can just look at the, the ledger of attendance at the gym and, and there's a rise that peaks at the beginning of the new year, the new semester, and the new week. They all go up by different amounts, 33%, 14%, 47%. doesn't matter. The point is, is anytime there's a fresh month, a fresh season, a fresh semester, a fresh year, people have it in their innate mindset and ability that there's a fresh start. This old way of life is behind me. This new way of life is before me if I can just step into it. And you and I have the same opportunity. And this is, I love the final thing that they say is this. If you're struggling to make a transition, create a defining moment that draws a dividing line between the old, the old you and the new you. If that isn't the most gospel-centric message I've ever read in a New York Times bestseller. Wonderful concept. Old you, new you. And what I love about this story is this isn't just about salvation. It's the life of the gospel is that what we have to live by is this constant reality that we have an old self and a new self and we get to step into greater realms of this new creation. And you know what helps is defining a moment and not missing the wisdom of a moment when it comes. If the band could come up and start to play um, when you're ready. I'm going to give you a few minutes. You don't need to, you don't need to stress, but just start coming. Because here's, here's how I want to, to land this. I want us to actually have a moment of silence. And as we do that, I know there's even still distractions. I, I tried this this week, multiple moments of silence, and I never actually got silence. <laughs> just so you know. And we're not going to get pure silence right now. That's going to really annoy some of you. And that's good. So go, go try to find more silence somewhere else. May this eagerly lure you into a new place of silence and solitude. Uh, I, believe, I believe the women this week that were at the, the gathering on uh, Rhythms did this little exercise. We're not going to do the whole exercise um, that they did earlier this guy named Pete Scazzaro that Sue and I are really starting to love has done this whole thing. There's some resources we may send out during the week. Um, but he invites the prayer of solitude. And I want to invite all of us as we close into a prayer of silence and solitude. And so you can just make yourself comfortable. I am going to ask us to stand in a moment, but not yet. Just, just sit there and receive with the presence of God among us. And I want us to ask these questions as we start to look at how do we practice silence and solitude in our life. I think we have, to, we have to come to the Lord afresh and be real. What am I avoiding, God? What is it, that, that feeling that we don't really want to engage with? What am I avoiding that, that only comes up in the silence when I want to numb it with anything I possibly can in my devices? Secondly, to find the moment in just the silent moments. Define moments like as big as a, as a reverse wedding ceremony. I want us to be a people that are beautifully pursuing those kinds of big life moments and in inviting the community into it. But it starts by defining the moments of silence in your day. And I suggest you start with morning, noon, and night. One minute of pure silence in the midst of the noise.
But when you enter into that silence, you have to be real and surrender. What am I avoiding? And then you have to be willing to define the moment. Name it, vent it, and remember that your words have power. This woman, this widow, she verbalized it. Sometimes a moment is just between you and God. Other times you need some people around you, a close friend, a community of people, a community group, an entire church, your family. Anytime you need to make a shift from the old to new. It's why we celebrate baptisms, new birth, new life. But this needs to be the common way of life that we're continually celebrating the old and new. Surrender yourself to trust him. And start your surrender in silence. So why don't you stand? And I want you to start playing. And then I'm going to ask you to stop. <laughs> so stand with me. Remember back to the mountain with Elijah. I enter back into the word. There was the sound of sheer silence, and there was only silence when God and his presence met Elijah. This silence is a special form of being uniquely attuned and attentive to God himself. It's where God dwells, and it's where we're meant to dwell in the midst of a culture of noise. The sad part is that this society has made silence such a rarity that we have to guard it, treasure it, defend it, and choose it like never before. I invite you right now to have a moment, a defining moment where you choose, I am going to meet you, God, in the silence where I am going to surrender afresh as a way of life, as a rhythm of life, as a practice of life. Jesus gives us this promise. Come to a quiet place and get some rest. Because he knows that in that silence, God has things to give us, to anchor us, to bring us back to him, and to make us attentive to him in the midst of a noisy world around us. And now, I'm just going to ask us for one minute of silence. Yes, there's kids. Yes, there's other sounds. But there's nothing intentionally happening besides the silence. One minute.
All right, you can come back up. You guys can keep playing again. It's beautiful. And I want to close with this. Uh, Tiffany, would you come up if you're still in here? She shared this little testimony. I'm just going to ask her to share this with you as we close in prayer. Sometimes when we have the old and the new, and we have the old self and the new self coming together, the silence will create a lot of thoughts to come forth. And it did for me this week. I sat in silence, and a lot of thoughts came forth, came forth. And they were old patterns, old thoughts of, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, self-judgment, self-judgment. And I was really discouraged in the silence because <laughs> I thought I had, I'm a recovering performance, like, Lord, I'll do it. I'll work, work for you instead of just receive and respond. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going back to that place, the old self, the old way of working, working, working. And God in such his kindness and the silence of listening to these thoughts of judgment, self-judgment, he said, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, it's not now you going back to performing. It's your posture of what are you going to do now with these thoughts. And my old way was I was going to work harder, work harder for the Lord. So then he'd love me more. And this posture he was inviting me into was, oh, no, come to me and let me speak your my promises over you. Let me tell you what an amazing daughter you are. Let me speak identity over you. Let me speak truth over you. And I just, I want to invite us, and silence can create lots of thoughts. But God's posture is, come daughter, come son. Let me meet you with truth. Let me meet you with identity. Let me meet your fears. Let me speak over your doubts. Let me speak into your confusion. Let me silence the chaos. Let me be God and let you be my daughter. Let you be my son. Let me, let God be in control and let us surrender. So we're going to have communion. We're going to have prayer teams. And I just invite you to respond. Respond to Papa God in the silence and the surrendered thoughts that come and you watch them go. And let him meet you. Him and you through time of communion. Or if you need people to stand with you speak truth of the new you, the, the new identity, the wholeness of what you carry. We would love to stand with you and remind you of the wholeness of who you are as a daughter and as a son, the Most High God.